We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all age, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen? bow in prayer. Father, now we come to your word and we pray that you would prosper your word in our hearts. Give us your spirit to understand. We know concerning the things we are about to address, there are differences of opinion differences of interpretation, and we know, Lord Jesus, on the night in which you were betrayed, you prayed for unity, that your people might be one with you just as you and the Father are one. And we pray that same prayer as we come to your word. Help us not to be stubborn, but to examine, to think, to consider, realizing that there's a whole world of Christians who still need to be made one. We thank you that Jesus' prayer will be answered, for he can never pray or request incorrectly. And so we have hope that you will accomplish this work on earth just as he prayed. So bless our time in your word, we ask in his holy name. Amen. Well, of course, one of the major stories that you see on the news every day has to do with that uh, piece of land in the Middle East that we call the Holy Land. And uh, you have uh, Christians all around the world who have different views about the Holy Land and how things are going to work out, but the largest percentage in our country 
if, if I'm correct, about 65% of the churches, this would be conservative churches, uh, not necessarily all classified by the term evangelical, but conservative and believing in salvation by faith in Christ, 65% of them believe that God has given that land to Israel and uh, that in 1948 God revived Israel, brought them back to the land, and he is going to fulfill unfinished promises from the Old Testament. And whenever something like this uh, comes up, then uh, if, you, if you're one of those people like me who likes to snoop just a little bit, then you... Uh, I'm not, I don't snoop into you guys, let me tell you that. You're not fun enough to snoop into. <laughs> then you turn on the television and, you know, you go find the, the, the ones that interest you in their message. And lo and behold, sure enough, you see, oh man, people are worked up and uh, Jesus is coming tomorrow. Well, I don't hold that view although I did until somewhere early 2000s, made it known somewhat after early 2000s. And uh, so I have, uh, I, I, I don't think I'm boasting about this because I have a lot of empathy for people who hold the view that I once held. In fact, I taught it here for years, so I'm responsible at this point for teaching something that I now consider incorrect. Some people think that a Bible teacher should never change. That would be the height of arrogance, in my opinion, since God is finite, and his word is finite, and his mind is finite, and ours are... I said it wrong, didn't I? <laughs> it's going to be one of those Sundays. <laughs> God is infinite. His mind is infinite. His word is infinite. You could never say, oh, I've finally learned it. My father-in-law once said, well, I don't need to read the Bible. I read it once. He was a pastor of a church. Our minds are finite. And I don't know about you. There are lots of pages of Scripture I turn to, and I, I wonder, what in the world does this mean? And as I told you before, Galatians is uh, one of those books that has troubled me because I, I couldn't make things add up. It didn't, it didn't set right. And over reading, uh, you know, a little more and a little more, different people, different people, getting certain observations, and then finally I decided, you know, I, th I, think I'm, I, think I've, I think I've gotten closer where I need to be. Well, so we're in Galatians, and we're in, uh, it's divided in three sections, chapters 1 and 2, where Paul is defending his gospel and his apostleship, chapters 3 and 4, which is the heart of the epistle, where he's defending what we would call the doctrine of justification by faith, and then chapters 5 and 6, where he is applying what he has taught. We're in chapter 3. I hope today we will uh, finish chapter 3, although as we move forward, we'll have occasion to look back at it. We noted at the beginning of the epistle that uh, we're told that Jesus gave himself for our sins. 
to deliver us from the present evil age. And we noted at the end of the epistle in chapter 6, we are told circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but a new creation. So, I'm suggesting at the beginning we're being told about an age that Paul and his readers were in and God delivered them from that age and he put them into a new created age which we are also in. Now, you may look at the beginning and you say, well, our age is evil too. Well, yes, if you're looking at things by outward appearance instead of studying God's word to see what it actually says, yes, you would say, well, yeah, you look around and it just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. But the evil age has to do with the subject of the epistle, not with a broad scope of all of what God's up to. And the subject of the epistle is a group of Jewish people who have trusted Christ. Maybe some of them haven't. And a group of Gentile people have trusted Christ. And one group is saying to the other group, hey, it's good that you trusted Christ, but that's not good enough. You need to become circumcised. And that is the evil age from which God delivered the church he delivered the church when jesus came and this age that was the jewish age and this is not to speak against jewish people this is just the way god did things the jewish age ran all the way down and in this you know some people like to call it an experiment it was hardly an experiment god knew exactly what he was doing and it happened just the way he planned that it would happen through this age he chose a family abraham's family and he blessed them and said you will be a blessing and all of the families all of the nations will be blessed in you but this family abraham's family proved over time all the way down through old testament history that they were infected with the same problem that all of us are infected with, and it's the infection of sin. It's like a disease that grabs hold of people. And so when you get down to when Jesus has come, there's been all these years where sin has penetrated and upset and turned everything upside down, and then comes Jesus. We've been delivered from that age. And then Jesus comes and a new creation happens. He's put to death. He's buried in the ground. And then he rises from the dead. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But new creation is everything. And it is the guarantee when you note that Jesus rose from the dead that everything will be made new. And that is exactly what God is up to. Well, so we also noted that when you 
take chapter 1 and chapter 2. At the beginning of chapter 1, you have he gave himself for us to deliver us out of this present evil age, and you come down to the end of chapter 2, and we have the same sort of statement again. That is, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And so we have, we have bookends. Now we're coming to chapters 3 and 4, and we've already been in 3 all the way through verse 14. And uh, we, we're going to see that we have similar kind of bookends. Now, when you divide the Bible up into sections, sometimes it's very clear where you can tell paragraphs and you can group thoughts all together and you know you're moving from one topic to the next topic. Sometimes it doesn't happen quite so easily. And so when you come to chapter 3, one wonders where, where, where does the section begin? And some people think, it well, the, it begins at cha- verse 1 and it ends at the end of the chapter. And, you, and we'll see. Yeah, that, that's true. That is a section. But then when you come back to chapter 4 and you pick up chapter 4, you realize, oh my, we've stepped right back into the same topic a little bit. And then it goes down to verse 11. And so you say, well, maybe this section goes from 3.1 to 4.11 and all the way down. But in the end, we'll discover that the climax, the pinnacle of what Paul has to say in this doctrinal argument is the last paragraph in chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5. So we're just part way into it, and he starts out, and he tells us in verses one through five, which we've looked at a couple of times now. Well, you know, he's not such a—he's he, not worried about making enemies and influencing friends, because he—he—he he, he starts out and he says, "You ignorant Galatians." You know, if somebody said that to you, you might be a little upset. Well, the word can be translated in all different ways. What it really means is, you are empty-headed. You don't think. You know, somebody said, wow, you're empty-headed. Well, it's translated foolish here. That also isn't nice, because if you take that word and you push it back into Proverbs, it's the wise who prosper and please God and so forth, and it's the fools who are going to be destroyed. So if somebody calls you foolish, you don't really like that. Well, Paul is very agitated because he's, he's ministering for the truth of the gospel. He states it twice in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's holding fast for the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is this good news about a new creation and life that's given, and it doesn't come by circumcision. Well, circumcision's not the only thing he's concerned with. We have grown up in the post-Reformation era, and so when Paul uses the word works, and because we've, uh, we've, been, uh, we, we've been studied on this, we've been schooled on this, and we've been told all about this, and we're fans of Martin Luther, and by the way, we should be, then we think any time the word works comes up has to do with any little work of the law. And in one sense, that's true. But in Paul's sense in Galatians, that's not what he's talking about at all. He is not talking about people who think they can, by moral keeping of the law, from lying to stealing to committing adultery, all those things that one can finally gain salvation. Paul is not talking about that. He's talking about law workers And there's only one group of law workers. That is Jewish people. You know why? Because the law was only given to Jewish people. So when Paul says, you're of the works of the law, he's talking about Jewish people. They don't have a choice. 
They were put into the law, and they are called to keep it. They are of the works of the law. Gentiles are not. The law was not given to them. So they're just flatly called sinners. Because Gentiles don't know God's will. But they sin all the time without knowing God's will, so they're called sinners. Paul says, you know, we're, we're Jews by birth. We're not sinners from among the Gentiles. They looked at all Gentiles as sinners because why? Sinners don't know the law. Well, in our section today, we're going to move from sin to parabolus, transgression. And the difference is, you know, you know this in your children. When your children are young, they do things in your house that are wrong. They shouldn't have done it. But in one sense, they don't know better because you didn't tell them yet that's wrong. But you come along and you give them the law on that point, and next time we discover what they are, they look you right in the eye and they do it anyway. And that's when, whoo, the paddle comes out. Right? Well, that's how God operated. So there's all kinds of sin among Gentiles and Jews, but you can't take count of sin till you turn it into transgression. Then you know good and well you're violating God. Well, so in chapter 3, if you would turn to chapter 3 in verses 1 through 5 then, Paul is concerned about the gospel, and Paul's come to Galatia, and God has done this wonderful work in Galatia, and people have been baptized into Christ, and they've received the Spirit, and there are also miracles taking place within the churches because of the presence of the Spirit, and yet they're interested in the works of the law. Now, mind you, when it says works of the law, we're not talking about, okay, I don't want to lie anymore. That's a good work. I'm going to not lie. You know, and list all the things you want to list there. No. They're talking about specific works of the law that are Jewish in nature. Circumcision, eating the wrong kinds of foods, those sorts of things. He says, who bewitched you? Who put the evil eye on you? Do you think having come to Christ and received the Spirit, you're now going to mature by getting circumcised? Did you suffer so much in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then just look down at what he says there in verse 5. He says, does he then who provides you with the Spirit provide you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law? In other words, are, are, are miracles taking place because you Christian Gentiles have decided to get circumcised? Is that why it's happening? Well, the argument's going to be no. And, and we can see where he's headed. 
we read it. We don't have time to explain it all, but we'll just read verses 6 through 9 and just follow. So when it says, even so, in verse 6, what he's doing is he's taking the Galatians and he's narrating them into the story of Abraham. This is how it happened with Abraham, and this is where you fall on the track, is what he's saying. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would uh, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham saying all the nations shall be blessed in you so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer okay that all makes sense to us but we have to back off, as we said last week, and we have to step back and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, this all comes from Genesis, and in Genesis 15, we see Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And right away, we put on our Luther glasses, and we look up in the sky, and we see, oh, he saw all those stars, and God said, oh, you'll be like this, and he believed, and so now he is counted right in the sight of God. Well, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't say that. I am saying, here in Galatians, that's not what we're talking about. Not like that. So, Abraham did look up, and it was counted as righteousness. And we looked at Psalm 106 and we saw the only other occurrence, the only other occurrence in all of the Old Testament of that exact expression. And it was when Phineas speared a fornicating couple through with one spear and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, which turns out to be he was given a perpetual priesthood, which means from generation to generation to generation of peace as priests. In other words, he was given a covenant. And in Genesis 15, that's exactly what happens. He looks up, it's reckoned to him as righteousness, and the very next thing, covenant is made. And built on this covenant, then, we explore the life of Abraham as the Galatians and you and I are narrated into it. So we, too, hear the gospel and we believe, and we are put into ooh, the covenant, having been blessed because God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations. And now we have become sons of Abraham because we've believed. And that is the point of chapter 3. And it is a huge, very important, overlooked by 65% of the churches in the United States, absolutely crucial point. Well, let's see if I can find it. Turn, if you would, to Romans, Romans chapter 3. Ah, yes, here we go. Romans chapter 3, and, excuse me, chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
For the prom- verse, Romans chapter 4, verse 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants. I, do, I, I really don't like that, that translation. That is not the word in the Greek nor the Hebrew. The word is sperma. Well, of course, it's talking about generation, and it is talking about descendants. But uh, once you say descendants, all of a sudden we're thinking ethnically. Well, some of the time the Bible's thinking ethnically, but most of the time, in the section we're in, we're going to discover ethnicity has nothing to do with it. It's a promise. And the promise isn't just... Abraham and Sarah would have a loving relationship, and out of it would come Isaac. That certainly is the promise. And that through Isaac, all the way down to Jesus, who's part of the ethnic descendants, this blessing would be realized. But when it's talking about you and me, it's not talking about ethnicity. It's talking about promise, and we become children, not because we were generated by Abraham, but because we were generated by Christ. So he says in uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith, the covenant of faith. Now, Do you see the crucial word in that verse? It's world. Right now, what's happening over in what we call the Holy Holy Land is fighting over a certain piece of turf. In the Bible, particularly in the minor prophets and major prophets, that is called the Holy Land. We call it the Holy Land today. But what does Romans 4.13 say? All the world is the holy land. He's heir of the world. Now, how does that work out? Well, we know how it works out. It works out because Gentiles are going to come in. (laughs) They're all over the world. And when God is all done with what he's up to, this whole world, this whole earth, is going to be filled with the glory of God. In other words, it's going to be populated by nothing but Christians. As the waters cover the sea, the people will cover the earth as God's gracious gifts. So, in verses 6 through 9, then, Paul is narrating them into the story. I know we're going to run out of time because I do too much review each time. That's because I need it, not because you need it. So in verses 10 and following, this is is verses that are, you know, you've got to sit down and you've got to think it through to get it. But he says in verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed is everyone who does not do does not abide by all things written in the book of the law now look 
That is not talking about what we call Lutheran, Luther justification by faith, all those who are of the works of the law. The Gentiles were not of the works of the law. They were sinners. No, only the Jews who got called into covenant with God and he set out right before them the law. So he said, do it. And they were people of the works of the law. That's what it's talking about. And it's this covenant that God made with him that is explained to us in Genesis through Deuteronomy and it has the whole history and future of Israel in it where he tells them what's going to happen to you is you're going to go astray, you're going to break this law and I'm going to cast you out of the promised land, I'm going to vomit you out and you're going to be gone into exile and one day I will come back and redeem you. That's what 4 through 10 is about. Uh, excuse me, 10 through 14. It's hard getting old, you know? Can't remember anything. Look down at verse 14. Well, we better read verse 13 first. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, First of all, the Gentiles were not under the law. The Gentiles did not do transgression. They did not break the law. They were sinners, yes. And so the law has application as we think thought theologically out of it, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Christ redeemed Israel from the curse of the law. And in that law, it says, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. If you came over to Texas in the days of Jesus and you killed somebody and hung them up on a tree, he was not a curse of the law. He wasn't under the law. But Jesus, as we're going to see in chapter 4, he came, born of a woman, under the law. Because Gentiles are not under the law. They're sinners. They do sin all over the place. But they don't do transgression because it hasn't been revealed to them that this sin is wrong. I'm not saying that innately we don't know a lot of that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just trying to follow Paul's argument. So he says he redeemed those who were under law because he, was made a, he made a curse for them. And then look at what verse 14 says. In order that in Christ Jesus, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Jews? No, to the Gentiles. Because, after all, the promise was, the covenant is, you're going to be a blessing in your seed. Well, it depends on which promise you look at. One says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then another one says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we can see that, of course, that's worked out in the Davidic covenant where David begins to rule and his territory expands and extends and he rules over more. And when the seed comes, his territory is going to be all the earth. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the end of the earth as your possession. So he says in verse 14, in order that Christ Jesus, excuse me, 
let me get it right here, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Now, take note, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Who's the we? Well, my goodness, it's the Jews who are of the works of the law because they're under law. And all the way down, from Abraham all the way down to the New Testament, no Jew except special people anointed to be king ever got the Holy Spirit. No, it doesn't happen apart from the blessing being pumped onto the Gentiles and then together. Jew and Gentile turn to the faithful one in corresponding faithfulness and immediately they're given the Holy Spirit. That's the point. So it's like, you know, for all of this Old Testament, Israel had gone so bad and God would bring them back and they'd still go so bad and God would bring them back and they'd still go so bad, so spirit not given yet. And it's like there's a log jam. How can the blessing come out of Abraham through Israel to Gentiles when Gentiles are just as bad as you and I? It's just like that old proverb, and it's spoken by a Jew. Jews are just like Gentiles, only more so. So, hey, now we're in new territory, verse 15. Now, notice, verse 15 through 18 is going to be about the covenant, and we're, we're going to start working on this problem of the seed but at the end, it's going to talk about inheritance. And when we get down to verse 29, we're going to talk about heirs. You're heirs by promise. So Abraham has an inheritance. It's to his seed. His seed is, oh, sure, an ethnic seed, but that's not all his seed in the Old Testament. You know that, don't you? Because after all, in Jesus' line, there are Gentiles in the line. How much Gentile can you, blood can you have before you're not really ethnically a Jew? I don't know the answer to that because it's not really the point. But if you think of all those who came out of Egypt with Israel and they marched through the desert and then they came into the promised land, once they're in the promised land, you never hear about them as Egyptians again. Why? Because they became Jews through circumcision. Now, he says then in verse 15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Again, I don't like the translation. Maybe when I'll retire, I'll give my own. Dubious. It just says, I'm speaking to you as a man. That's what it says. Like a man. Even though it is, and again, only stuck in there because somebody decided it had to be emphasized. Even though it is a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. 
Well, he's using what we might call a covenant, something, something like a will, covenanted will. But, but of course, he's writing in days when understood, people understood what covenants were better. The best way we understand a covenant is a marital covenant. And you stand up in front of the preacher, the justice of the peace, or whoever it is, and you, you make your vows and you make a covenant together. Now, now you have this covenant. And there's only one thing that sets it aside. Death. Well, covenants are broken all across this land in opposition to what God says. Death should break the covenant because it's pretty hard to be married to a dead person. Well, some of you may think your mate's dead. Just a joke. So you don't set it aside, and you don't add new vows. Okay, no, no, honey, I, I know I said this on wedding day, but I want to add this. I'm, no, no, that's not the way it would be said. I want you to add this. Right? Look at verse 16. Now the, promise, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, that is, more than one, but as to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. Okay, right there, people say, okay, I got, I got it. We're waiting, we're waiting for Christ to come all the way from Abraham. Ethnic seed, yeah, true enough, we're waiting for Christ. But the word seed is one of those funny words. It could mean just one little seed, or it's one of those collective terms. Sperma. How many hundreds of thousands are implanted and then a child is born? The problem is, we are poor in theology. Christ is the same kind of term. You could be just talking about the person of Christ, which he is, or you could be talking about all the body parts of Christ. We might be say of that guy, that guy's got a good head. You know, we'd be talking about Caleb then, right? His only shortness is baldness. That's, that's all that's lacking for him. Good head. But he's got a lot of other good parts too. Well, Christ is a person, but we all know from Scripture, boom, you believe, boom, you're put into Christ, boom, you have a gift, you're Christ. That's why Paul could say, as Caleb has told us in Colossians chapter 1, I fill up what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because everybody here is Christ. Do you believe that? Yeah, we're Christ. That's the amazing thing. We've been brought into Christ. Right down to the end of the chapter, then he's going to bring that out. If you belong to Christ, you are the seed of Abraham, an heir by promise. He's not just talking about if you believe in Christ. No, he's talking about when you believed in Christ... You were made a part of him, like husband and wife together, and they're one body. We are one with Christ. He's talking about a collective term. 
So what are we looking for? Well, all this time, Israel's gone to the bad and to the bad and to the bad and to the bad, and they're looking for Christ. And when Christ comes, what is he? Why, my goodness, he's a family. And that's Paul's point. And in that family are Jews and Gentiles. And what kind of blood you have doesn't make a hill of beans of difference. In fact, when Jerusalem is destroyed, if there were more Bible written and there wasn't, you wouldn't see the term Jew or Gentile ever again because we are Christians, Christians. We are Christ. That's our family. Our family's not Abraham. Our family's not some Gentile. Our family is Christ. We belong to Christ. Notice what he says. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to disqualify, to nullify, excuse me, the promises. Okay? So covenant's made and a law comes in. And he's going to tell us why the law came in in a minute. The law comes in, and people can start thinking, okay, now what I have to do to be a part of this covenant, to get the blessings of the covenant, to be benefited in this, is I have to keep this law. And you Gentiles over here, if you want all that, you've got to be circumcised because that's what the law says. Well, of course, to be a part of Israel, you did have to be circumcised. To be a part of Christ, you don't have to be circumcised. It said, you know, if you don't circumcise your sons on the eighth day, they're going to be cut off from their people. They're not going to be a part of Israel. They're not going to be a part of the Abrahamic blessing. But things have changed. A law came in, but it can't change the promise. The blessing comes to Gentiles. What? By becoming Jews? No, by being Gentiles. So... Then verse 18 sums up this little paragraph from verses 15 to 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has, uh, God has granted, the word is graciously granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. What's the promise? Hey, Abe, in your seed, in this covenant, in your seed, every nation, every family is going to be blessed. And what does that mean? Well, he's going to tell us the end. It means just like your dad, Abraham, not by blood, but by promise, has an inheritance which is your inheritance. That's quite something. It's staggering. And so fighting over a little piece of turf is a bit funny when what's been given to Christians is not one piece of turf. Even Texas has been given to Christians. <laughs> I should have said, even New York. 
So you see, it's a promise. Of course, that raises the question. If the promise remains the same and you can't change it, promise is a promise. It doesn't have conditions attached to it. If, if it's the same, well, then why in the world is there a law? Why, why, why did law come in anyway? Well, so he says in verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of parabasis, transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency, the word agency, there is a hand, by the hand of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Oh, this thing was ordained by angels. Whoops, I just took a picture instead of shutting it off. I hope I look good. <laughs> so, the law comes in. It's ordained by angels. So now, now we've, we've talked about that. Just broadly, you should know by now that when Adam fell, man lost rule of the earth. And angels were put in charge all the way down, all the way in the book of Revelation. You get to the book of Revelation, you, just, you see the angels are going to be stepping aside because man's been redeemed, and now man's going to be in charge. But from Adam all the way down, angels have been in charge. So they were, uh, the law was ordained, put in place through angels. We see that here in this passage. We see that in, in, in Hebrews a couple of times. We see it in Acts chapter 7 a couple of times. It's just the way it is. It's not that way in our day. Angels don't administer like that. And all the people who talk about praying, you know, because the angel of this country or the angel of that country is doing all those crazy stuff, that, that all passed when Christ came. Angels aren't in charge anymore. We are. And look how great we're doing. We need a little revival or something, huh? So he says, uh, you know, so it's ordained by angels. It's mediated by a hand until the one to whom it's promised comes. Well, we all know that's Christ. But now just remember, Christ is an incorporative term. It's all of us. So, verse 20. This is the hard one. Well, I, let, me, let me step back and just say one more thing about transgressions. So you see... God decided, because from Abraham down through Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way down until we come to Mount Sinai, there is no parabasis, no transgression, because the law hasn't been given. But once the law comes and God says, you shall not lie, and you lie, now you've stepped over the line. You have transgressed. You've made a trespass. You've flaunted it right in God's face. He said no. He said, I don't believe that's the case. So what one purpose of the law is to turn sin into transgression. That's one purpose of it. It's not the only purpose, as we'll see. So the law comes in. It's brought in for a certain amount of time. 
It's time limited. It never was intended to be a long time. So when you come to the New Testament, we're, we're not under law. Why? Because the one to whom Abraham's promise was intended, he's come, and we're in him. So now, now the law is laid aside. So the promise had been, <clears throat> the, look at verse 20. Now, a mediator, in verse 19, it, it's mediated by a hand. Well, we know who that hand is when it comes to the law. It's Moses. Now it says, reading the numeric standard. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Now, if you have numeric standard, you, you can see what's italicized there. It's not for a parties italicized and only is italicized. And, and the Greek is really shrunken, but it's not unclear. So let me retranslate it. The mediator is not for the one. The mediator is not for the one, but God is one. Now, it's clear. You understand it. The mediator is not. Moses was not brought along to get Jew and Gentile together. That was not his commission. But in Galatians, our problem is Jew and Gentile. How do you work them into one group? The mediator's not for the one, but God is one. And along comes another mediator. And he takes Jew, and he takes Gentile, and he works from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., and he's melded them into one new people so that when Jerusalem the harlot wife is destroyed and all the covenant that goes with her what comes out afterwards is not Jew and Gentile just Christians now it's time to quit so we'll quit here but let me say this since I put it in my email that I forgot about yesterday and sent it early this morning well not so early maybe you read it maybe you didn't Okay, so we, we, get, we get, you know, when we're, when we're doing theology and, and the Bible and stuff, we, we, we figure out how to use terms that, yeah, you know, make us look good and the other guy look bad. And so those who think we're still fighting over one piece of turf and Jesus is going to come, and, and by the way, if you hold that view, I'm not trying to make fun of you, so don't, don't think that. I held that view. I hold a different view now. But, but we, we make terms, and so people will say to me, well, Craig, you just believe in replacement theology or supersessionism. That is, well, Craig, what you're saying is Jesus came and here's the church, and church has just taken over. the replaced Israel. Israel's nothing. You don't care about Jews, do you, Craig? No, that's nonsense. First of all, the church is Jew and Gentile. And second of all, it didn't replace Israel because, you know, you take this big funnel and you dump all the blessing in it and it's just funneling and funneling and funneling down to this point. And this point is named Jesus Christ and he is the only true Israelite, the best Israelite that ever was. And so now we're all put into him. And we're called Abraham's seed. And being put into him, well, he's going to say it at the end of the epistle. 
Blessed are those who hold to this law, even to the Israel of God. Because Jesus Christ is the Israelite to whom the promise came and were put into him. So, you know, you just can't get around it. Blood makes no difference anymore. It's not that we shouldn't have, uh, you know, Italians and Greeks and Jewish people. All, all that's fine. But, but when you look at it theologically, we are the Israel of God. And the promise is the whole world. The meek shall inherit the holy land. No, the meek shall inherit the earth. And that's you and me. Well, you can see, we've run out of time for some application I had, but you can, you can see we're, we're narrowing down. And when we get to the end of the chapter, we'll have some things to say. But let me just say one thing. You can see this chapter is moving towards absolute unity. Jew and Gentile, one. Not thinking, okay, here's one people of God over here and here's another people of God over here. This people of God, they're going to go to heaven at the rapture. This people of God, they're going to be on the earth during the millennium. No. That's like Jesus has two wives then. A wife over here who produces this family and a wife over here produces that family. We know that's not right. Jesus has one wife called the church. In the Old Testament, she was called Israel. In the New Testament, she's called the church. And Jesus and that church produce offspring, and they become part of the church. Unity is very important. Unity is so lacking in the Protestant church right now. Well, we'll talk about that more. We want unity, but we can't have unity by neglecting holiness. And holiness and unity, well, they're just... They're just a big problem to negotiate because you can be unified if you give up certain things of holiness and you can be holy if you don't care about unity. Oh, here we are. We're just our nice little church. We all agree. And, oh, man, you should see how we live. We're so saintly. You church over here, you are nothing. You're just ungodly. You see, it's a problem. I'm, I'm, I'm overemphasizing. You know that to, to illustrate. Think about that. It's easy to be holy if you don't care about unity. It's easy to be unified if you don't care about holiness. Stand with me. Father, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he became human, one of us. And we thank you that he's still human, sitting at your right hand, the first man ever into heaven. And we thank you that that tells us, hey, if he can go there, we can go there. And we thank you that when we die, we are immediately with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we thank you today that Jim is with you. Now, for we who live on the earth, help us to live out holy lives, seeking for unity. As we pray in Christ's name.
Amen.